welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, welcome back to another podcast. Hopefully you all had a good Thanksgiving. I know um, I enjoyed having my dad in town. Little Dud was home most of the time. He had to do a little bit of swimming, but that, other than that, that was it. And a lot of cooking, a lot of eating. Um, not as much working out as I'd like. And I'm almost off my routine right now for like diet and sleep. I'm up at 2.30 in the morning once again and decided to go ahead and kick this podcast out. I was a podcast behind because I had promised a podcast to one of my Instagram knock-on nationers, um, Dayton Todd Holloway. He posted a picture with just this abundance of of ribs and he was rubbing them down in his do you even podcast bro t-shirt so i was motivated motivated by the picture and i sent a message to him let him know hey dude definitely gonna do a podcast now for that cool picture in that shirt appreciate you you know ordering one of the shirts too for sure could be one of the first out there you could have got the first i don't know but uh yeah they've they've gone over really really well and I sent him a message quick and kind of said, hey, if there's anything you want to know about, I'm going to kick the podcast off with that. So that's where we're at right now. And his podcast question is, do you feel that the rut is over? Is there such a thing as a second rut and what is a good post-rut strategy? So obviously we're going to start off talking deer hunting and... Um, obviously we're after the Thanksgiving week, so, um, I don't think the rut is fully over. Um, the majority of it is certainly over, um, this Thanksgiving week, notoriously in the Midwest, um, especially here in Iowa, the Thanksgiving week is often known for the sightings of the biggest bucks of the year, other than, you know, if you have a really solid um late season food source you can also see you know see some giants that you really aren't aware of but um this post rut it's a great time to see a buck that you never even know about because they really just start covering miles trying to find that last doe or two and what you'll notice is some of the bucks, especially some of the younger bucks um, that maybe aren't still in a full zombie mode, they'll start to show up kind of at the same place at the same time. So, um, you know, I've had a few buddies tell me that they had two or three bucks out in the same green plot and the bucks are kind of looking around and they work their way over to the does. They smell around on the does, but for the most part, they're trying to recharge right now and get some consumption, which I think in a lot of states, um, I think the deer slow down and really try to get some food in them because they also know that that gun season's coming up 
and they do want to recharge and refuel a little bit before that happens. Um, but I'm telling you, you can certainly have an opportunity at just a world-class deer during this tail end of the rut. And the other thing is actually Sharon's buck that she shot, um, she shot doing exactly what I just talked about, coming to a food source with plenty of daylight, just really chowing down, trying to recharge, but was also like every time a new doe came into that field, um, half rack was just buzzing around trying to smell, see if they see if that was a possibility but then he'd go right back to feeding and i think she shot her buck on like december 2nd or december 3rd so it was actually i know it was one day before gun season started so it would have been equal to this coming thursday if you're here in iowa so for the late season the main thing is from here on out you really need to focus on food from a strategic point of view you need to either find if you don't have the food find that transition area between the bedding and the food i wouldn't get too aggressive right now a lot of these deer are going to start to become extremely sensitive to pressure um, especially once they know that gun season is coming close so you really want to just either get an opportunity as they're going by or be at a food source where you feel like you can um, start your hunt or end your hunt with minimal pressure as well you can spend a lot of time out there right now too i've i've seen big big bucks throughout all times of the day during the late season when they're really trying to recharge it's almost like bears when they come out of hibernation their feeding pattern gets a little bit more unpredictable um, I know there's been several times where I've gone out at the first day of late season. And I normally will try to just get in my blind. You know, I don't, if I'm going to be hunting a food source, for example, if I'm hunting over standing corn or standing beans, um, something like that, I'll normally avoid going out before uh, daylight and sitting on a food source because a lot of times you're going to blow those deer out of there unless you have someone that can maybe take you in on a tractor or something like that and just let you get up in a blind and then let the tractor drive off a lot of times that doesn't disturb their patterns um, but otherwise during the late season I'll often get in my blind about nine in the morning or ten in the morning when I know that most of the deer have vacated and I can tell you that I've had years where the biggest deer I've seen of the day came out at like 12.30, 2.30 and fed for a while and then kind of ended up venturing off. And, you know, there's been a few times where I've made the mistake of seeing a really good deer um, right in the middle of the day during that late season. And I'm thinking, okay, well, if this buck's coming here right now in the broad daylight... I really need to, you know, I want to wait and see what I'm going to, what I'm going to have come out once it's closer to prime time. But then I've, you know, there's been many times where I've been disappointed by making that decision because that was by far the best year that was coming. He was just deciding to come more on his own. So don't be afraid of midday hunts either during the late season, but 
I do feel that there is a second rut um, as well. I had the biggest deer I've still to this day ever seen in my life came out um, right at the tail end of December on a very small doe, like possibly a late, possibly like a late, a real late fawn from the year before, or maybe it was a real early fawn from, from the same year, but it was a small deer and the biggest buck, um, that I've ever seen in the wild came out, followed that doe around, literally nose to the butt for probably a good 45 minutes to an hour and then finally um, started breeding and went all the way until dark so I know there is a second rut where some of those ones that maybe just don't take or whatever come back in and I've witnessed um, several occasions where I've seen breeding in that later part of December and a lot of times those are the fawns that you're going to see where like bucks are already coming out of velvet and you just see that one or two fawns that's with a doe that that are still spotted nothing else is it's normally that that later uh breeding cycle that causes that so appreciate you having the podcast bro t and appreciate you wearing it and hey i was glad you're out cooking man that was awesome we're going to jump into some other questions here. I pulled off, um, I believe, my athlete page on Facebook. Um, first question here is from Johnny Young. He says, his girlfriend's shooting a Matthews Jewel, and they keep having problems with the string stretching and the bow getting out of time. Um, it says the zebra string was, was awful, so they put on um, an ABB string. And he said it's been pretty good up until about a week before season. Um, and then the bow went out of sync again. He says he's shooting a, an ABB string on his Hoyt Carbon Spider Turbo. Um, and he said he noticed a flat spot on the cables where the cables are touching the roller guard. Wants to know my opinion. So a couple of questions here. One, you know, it's unfortunate a lot of bow companies... Don't put the effort into strings and cables that they that they certainly could. Like all of them are capable. Um, you know, every string and cable company is capable of producing a super high quality string and cable. But when you're talking about mass production, um, you know they're unfortunately trying to make margins high. And you know, I was always surprised that surprised that. You know some of the lower lower paid positions, like at Matthews, for example, was people that are in the string department because one, it's a tedious uh, tedious job in itself. I mean, I always respected the fact that those people could go in there and just crank out strings all day, every day. Um, but you know, because you're not maybe investing in having a higher paid position for you know the custom for like more of a custom super super tight string of cable these people are just trying to crank out numbers trying to meet quotas 
And when that happens, a lot of times the serving tools and how tight they're pulling their knots when they're wrapping strings, when that string's going around on a windmill and then they're, they're you know, tying those strings and cables off, or when they're running their servings, you know, they, they're not cranking the tension down as tight just because it's harder to hold and harder to pull off. And, you know, they're cranking out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of strings a day. They just, you know, unfortunately things loosen up. And a lot of times the factory strings and cables, they continually give you problems. And that's why I've said many times that sometimes, uh, depending on what type of string and cable is on your bow right from the factory, if you're starting to have problems where you can tell your synchronization is turning. Um, you mentioned um, your that Matthew's jewel being out of, you know, single cams don't go out of time. Um, by the way, a single cam, the true term for it would be, um, I would, I always call it your, your rotation position. Um, because where you have your cam rotated to on a single cam bow, it ultimately, that is what determines the efficiency of the cam and because it's only one cam it can't really go out of time it it can go out of position meaning if your string stretches or if your cable stretches unfortunately with a single cam it does affect your knock trap or your knock position your knock height so you know it's always it always sucks when you you have your cable stretch and all of a sudden your knock point starts to move up you know and then you'll start to shoot low but the other thing, too, is if the center servings aren't very tight, the most common place for them to just move themselves is up because of the pressure. So a lot of times if someone's entire serving is slowly slipping up the string, then you continually hit lower and lower and lower and lower over the course of time. So I definitely um, like to invest in some type of a high-quality string and cable. Before I do anything with the bow, I always just switch them right away. And on this last bow that I had made, um, I actually just had the Hoyt Fuse String Department build me some strings and cables with a material that I really like from BCY. And they're actually factory strings and cables, and so far I've, I've been doing well with them. Um, I have had to redo the center serving right out of the box because, you know, their string and cables are normally made for one particular size to fit a certain knock. And I've been I've been shooting several different types of arrows on these bows, so I keep having to redo the center serving just so that I have a really proper fit. And that's something I think is really important. Um, a lot of people don't pay attention to how their arrow fits at center serving when they first set up their bow, first set up their string. This is important, one, because it really affects arrow flight. Um, years ago, I remember doing an article for Christian Berg at Peterson's Bow Hunting. Um, I think it was something about um, how knocks can affect accuracy. So... I took a bow, I had it shooting really good, and pretty much sighted it in. 
um, at a certain distance and shot the best group I could, which it was real tight. All the arrows were touching. And then what I did was I took that same bow. I removed the center serving. I put a very thick center serving on there so that the arrow really snapped on hard and you had to like pull it hard to get it to go off. Um, and then I literally sighted that same bow in and then tried to shoot my best group with the um, extra thick center serving. Then I removed that center serving. I put on a center serving that's almost too small where if you let your bow down, the arrow comes off the serving, which can be a major pain if you ever have that. But um, then I shot a bow with super loose serving and the one with the tight serving shot the worst. The one with the looser serving um, kind of shot in between. But um, either way, you do lose accuracy. And the other thing is, if your serving is too tight, then you'll actually do um, what Johnny was just talking about. You build a flat spot. Now, the flat spot he was talking about is behind the roller guard, and that is because a lot of times when you shoot a compound bow and it has a roller guard, it's actually, or, you know, for ex well, there's two different, if you have a, a roller guard of some sort, you're going to have that either slipping or a flat spot behind where that roller is. There's a lot of pressure on there. It's doing that so the cables don't vi you know don't vibrate and kind of move forward and back. That's why there's always tension um, there for a roller guard type system. And what ha what's happened is it's almost like doing a burnout in your car. Um, you know, as soon as you shoot, that wheel is just zzz, it's spinning super fast. Those bearings and those little wheels um, on your roller guards, or if you don't have an actual rolling um, wheel on your guard if you're just like feeding through an eyelet there's a tremendous amount of friction at the startup of your bow firing um, it's just like stomping on the gas in your car and just burning you know burning your tires off going down the road that's what it's like it's going to be a lot darker you're going to have a lot more traction at the beginning and the further you get away you start to you know you kind of start to catch back up so that's what's happening with your cables in those in those roller guards and a lot of times those flat spots are from where it's just either starting or stopping um, one of the two so if you notice that it's going to start to cut and unravel you're certainly going to have to address that um, again some strings and cables are made better than others. I can tell you when it comes to serving material itself, the most durable um, is the BCY Halo. Um, it's a little bit more of a pain in the butt to put it on. If people don't know how to put it on right, um, they can cause some problems with your string rotation. Like, for example, the thing is, the material is so hard um the halo is like a it's a braided dyneema material and the in the fashion that it's braided it's it's almost like 
having the pulling strength of like bamboo or something. It's ridiculously strong. A lot of times, if you're ever using it and you have your serving spool, you can actually make you can make your tension so tight that it'll actually pull the one line coming out of your tool it'll pull that all the way down to the bottom of the spool it'll just like pull it through itself because it's you can make it so tight and what happens is if someone's making a string cable and they're thinking tighter is better they end up squirting all of the twists out from underneath your your serving and it takes a long time for that string to settle back in so your peep rotation kind of gets a little funky but if you use it on your cables which is where i use it i'll use it on my cables lower cables and i also use it behind the roller guards because it just wears like iron and if someone knows how to put it on the correct way you can have an awesome string of cable that way and if you want halo on one of your strings or cables um i again i would probably say not to use it on um your string servings because if someone doesn't know how to do it right you're going to have peep rotation problems recurve shooters do there's some recurve shooters that really like halo on their center serving and they get away with it because they're not using a peep sight so if their string is slightly twisting as they draw back it's not a problem Um, but on the cables it's dynamite wears like iron Um, probably gives you twice to three times the the wear life so you're gonna have to mark your cams also Everyone out there, make sure you always mark your cams. Use your limb as a reference. Make a mark. That way, if you have any stretching um, of a string or a cable, you can identify it right away by your marks moving. So, uh, let's see. You had one more part. Oh, when you talked about, let's see. Uh, Okay, you had one more part of this. It said, also what do you do for a squeak in the draw cycle you said on your carbon spider zt um it'll squeak in the last inch of the draw um and you said you actually have um, a defiant that's starting to do it now so this is without seeing it i really want to know whether or not it's the bow or whether it's you know if you're getting a squeak in the last inch of this draw cycle too and you've got it on two different bows you know i'm kind of curious is it like a fall away rest or something where as it's coming up it's making a squeak um you can certainly have a squeak if you have um if you've got too much tension on um your rockers like on your older Hoyt, there's there's two plastic pads that go underneath the limb on the underside of the limb. Those are called um, rockers, is what we refer to those as. And then those rockers pushing against the bottom of your limb, your limb's actually bending over the top of those rockers. But on that, on the older style boat Hoyts. The limb pocket systems had two screws that came through the sides where you could really compress the pockets. 
If that's too tight, sometimes you get a binding there and you can have a small little click. I don't know. It would more be like a click than a squeak. Um, squeak means something's like rotating, more like a door hinge, whereas a click is something's more like being arced, where it's, you know, it's it's a different sound. But I'm going to guess that it is a click. And what you want to do in those situations, first off, try to slightly loosen those screws on the side. You don't want them to loosen them to where they're coming undone, but just loosen it slightly. If someone at the shop or an installer really bared down on those and compress those pockets, it's not going to do anything negative. It's actually going to it's going to be more positive because you're not going to have any shifting in your limb pockets or your limb system at all. So if it's over tight, it could do that. But the other thing is, and people notice this a lot if they ever have to replace their limbs, is that you can get this little like kind of a click um, in that last part of the draw cycle. And that's actually where the limb is starting to arc at its biggest point it's kind of having to bend around the back end of that rocker and it can make a little click noise just the friction of it in that last little bit of of bending so what i always did was i took some string wax and you can do that or if you if you have a good shop you can take it into a shop and tell them to do it but i would take the limbs out i would wax the side of the limbs and actually when you first get a hoyt um, you'll notice on the older ones, there's always like a kind of a gold speckly um, lubricant down the sides of each of the limbs where they fit into the pocket. Anywhere where the limb contacts the pocket, you would have saw this kind of glittery type um, grease. And what that does is it's just like it's just like a carbon um, or a graphite lubricant that just prevents that squeaking from happening or that little clicking noise you know it sounds like you're popping your toe or like when you squeeze your hand you have those little clicks it might sound like that you can definitely get rid of it um, if you have just a little bit of lubricant on the sides of your limbs where it contacts you know those parts of your limb pocket i might just make a little post on what i'm talking about um, maybe on my Instagram account I can show you. But um, if you do that, you're not going to have those problems. Otherwise, make sure you check your rest as well. Make sure that your aero rest doesn't have any issues. But always replacing your strings and cables with a high quality. It's going to do you a lot of good, um, especially if you live in heat. I don't know where you're from, Johnny, but if you're down where it's really, I think you said North Carolina, which I know it's been hot there. A buddy of mine just came from North Carolina last week, told me how hot it's been. So it's been in the, you know, upper 70s and 80s. So, you know, if you leave your bow in a car in that kind of temperature, it's going to have some string movement. So you want to prevent that as well. Appreciate you writing in, man. Sorry it took a little while to reply to you. I'm doing my best to get through everybody on all these media channels um and next question here is from dennis groom um says any preference oh any preference in a state for trophy quality um deer he's a so dennis is actually i think he's from 
I think you're from Ireland. I hope I got that right. But I know you're from overseas somewhere. But uh, I think he's from Ireland. So he was just mainly sent a message first asking me what would be a good animal if someone was interested in hunting from overseas internationally wanted to come to the States to do a hunt, what would be kind of a cool first hunt to do. Um, just for simplicity, I said a whitetail hunt, and so that's what he's asking for is like what is a quality state. Um, really anywhere in the Midwest, um, which is kind of our central part of the USA. Um, the thing is here, you're going to have to get it. Make sure you draw a tag or get a tag. Certain states you can buy tags over the counter. Certain states you do have to apply for the tag, but it's almost guaranteed. Um, for example, Illinois um, has a, 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 it's an amazing state for deer hunting. They have a lot of outfitters there. You could easily do some research on the internet. Um, and if any listener, if any of you listeners out there have a outfitter business that has deer hunts, um, then maybe contact Dennis Groom on Facebook. And I th I'm sure he's from England or Ireland or something like that. I'll have to look here while I'm talking. But I don't, I don't really hunt with outfitters, so I don't have good names for you um, in regards to that. But I know that a lot of people do well by going into some of these forums looking around a little bit let's see found dennis groom on facebook here let's see pro staff team at biter so yeah he's definitely this is definitely the right one because well you live in new galloway new galloway i think is where you're at let's see i'm stalking you right now dennis as we're podcasting, I'm literally stalking you. Um, it's got a lot of videos on here, people. Can't, I'm having trouble getting in there. A lot of videos. Um, well, anyway, he's not from the U.S. So if you people listening have a good, reputable business, contact Dennis. Let him know. Don't rip him off. He's a listener. He's part of our fellowship so don't screw him over please um and if he really really likes it and says you guys are awesome then i'll probably let him post on one of my pages that post about his success and i'll share it and i'll advertise for you so treat dennis good he's one of our friends um i'm gonna jump in now to the knock on facebook page last night i did a live feed um, talking specifically about the silverback release and how it relates to helping target panic help and I also started talking about back tension what back tension was and kind of showed you using my son who's pretty shredded showed you the different muscle groups and the posture and his form kind of showed you proper positioning of the body and bow fit we went through a really good live feed. If you're listening right now and you want to check that out, 
then I did load it to the Knock on Archery YouTube channel. So you can go on there, and the name of it is Live Coaching Session from John Dudley on Back Tension. That's what you're going to want to watch. You'll know what the heck we're talking about right now. But uh, I'm going to jump into some of the questions. I'm going to scroll through the whole um, comments part of that feed and try to answer some of the questions for you you all that I did not get to. Um, first, the very first question I'm looking here is from Jerry Long. Hey, Jerry. Um, let's see, where are you from since I'm stalking? You're from Rock Springs, Wyoming. So thanks for tuning in out there, man. Um, your question was, does the silverback work for left-handed shooters? Yes, absolutely. So any of the Carter releases are going to work for right or left-hand shooters. All you have to do is take out one small screw and flip the thumb knob to the opposite side of the release. Put that screw back in there, and you're going to be working good. You're going to be golden. I heard there was like two left-handed shooters out there, so it's pretty cool that one of them is a knock-on TV follower. So thanks, Jerry. Just kidding. You guys are actually at 8%. Just so you know, 8% of the bow market is left-handers. I remember I used to have to order left-handed grips when I was at Matthews, and I'd have to run that percentage. Um, Let's see. Where next is... Okay, well, Keith Thompson's asking, when will the X-Press Pros ship? Um, So Keith must have jumped in on one of our Black Friday deals. I actually really wanted to get a lot of you into the X-Press Pro because that's what I'll be using for my builds. So I actually called X-Press and ended up having to negotiate... um, buying a ridiculous amount of presses for them in order to get them at a price where I thought we could all get into one. So I wanted to buy another two more for myself. Um, I thought it'd be cool to put them on there. Either way, I'm telling you, the presses normally sold for like 1200 bucks, I believe. I think I think they were a 1000 maybe at Lancaster. Um, but I'm actually getting able to ship them to your door like everything included for 700 bucks um and they're on the knock on archery store so knockonarchery.com you can go on there and i believe it's under i'm gonna look here while we're talking well it's actually right on the front page right now under the featured products because it must be um one of the higher purchase ones oh and it's actually right on the front page. It says Express Pro Sale. There's a little icon um, right at the bottom right. And you can click on that and you're going to see it. But anyway, um, he's wanting to know when they ship. And several shipped last week. We literally, as you're sending your orders in, we're giving those orders directly to Express, and they're actually getting shipped to you from Superior, Wisconsin. So, trying, and that was one thing that I did. I got you know direct shipping, so we're not having to middleman this um, with shipping as well. So those orders are going to ship from them. 
Um, some of them went out last week. I think some, I know the rest are obviously going to go for sure, but I can't tell you their exact schedule, but, um, because it is, mine came on a truck, um, because they actually had it bolted down to a pallet so that it, uh, didn't get messed up. I don't know if everyone's will come that way, but mine did. So the other thing too, I guess on the press, while I'm talking about the presses, a lot of people are asking about dimensions because they don't have dimensions of the press on their website. And I believe the overall length of it, like from the end of the crank that's on the right to the end of the press on the other side was 61 inches. The mounting holes are 48 inches, I believe on center. Um, the actual like depth of it is right at 12 inches and the height is really going to depend on how high you bring the, the actual X straps up. So, uh, should be on the way, man. I know some people got theirs. I saw where they had posted it. And if you got one, thanks Keith. Appreciate it. Actually appreciate the heck out of everybody out there. That black Friday sale was ridiculous. Um, I'm glad my dad was here because we were there's five of us working around the clock to get all of your orders out um so thank you for that and thanks for the support definitely awesome to have the support from all of you out there um next question here is from jared vanderhoost he's asking what arrows i use for target so it really depends on the target that i'm going to be shooting Right now for indoor, I'm actually shooting some limited edition, limited edition X23 Easton's, um, a 2315. I'm shooting that for indoors. I believe my point weight settled in at 220 grains of point weight with a 3-inch max stealth vein with a 2-degree offset. And I'm shooting Easton Super 3D knocks in that particular arrow. Um, my points are from pro points, um, and it's just the standard bulge. I'm not shooting like the pig points or the pin points, whatever they call them. Uh, I'm not shooting those. Now, when I go outside, my arrows have actually changed a lot over the last couple years. I mean, there's really outdoor shooting is such a it's endless right now when someone says, what do you shoot for outdoors? Because now with outdoor um, target archery coming to like, you know, double 50 rounds, 50 meter rounds, instead of still shooting the full feeders with the 30, 50, 70, 90 meter stuff, your arrow, ha you have so much more range of choice because you're not shooting almost double that distance, right? You're shooting 50 meters instead of 90 a lot of people's scores were you'd make it or break it at your 50 and 70 and, or your not your sorry your 70 and your 90 your 50 you could you could kind of struggle through and still be okay as long as you were solid at those longer distances but now when we go to 50 you know you just don't have near the wind drift um that you had to deal with back when we were shooting 90 meters so some people are going back to a slightly bigger diameter shaft because they don't have to worry so much about wind. But when it comes to, um, and I guess I've shot everything from ACCs to 
I've shot pro fields. I still have pro fields. I like them. I shoot pro fields quite often. Um, obviously, the X10, original X10 is good as long as you know proper cuts from the rear of the shaft um, and how to tune and properly get your hill method uh, tuning done with rear cuts as well as front cuts. Uh, if you want to eliminate that out of the equation, then obviously the X10 Pro Tour is super solid. Um, the a lot of the people that are shooting Carbon Express, you know, shooting the Nanos. Um, there's just a lot of variation for 3D. Last year I shot um, a Fat Boy 340 with a hundred grain point, and I was shooting um, three of the AAE Max Pro veins. If I'm shooting one of the arrows I talked about a minute ago with the Pro Fields the Pro Tours or the X10. With any of those, I'm shooting my little um, target. I've got a, what the heck do I call them? Better look this up quick. Make sure I give you the right terminology. Starting to lose it, people. I'm like forgetting the names of these things. Problem is we have our own little names. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, so the Target Max 2.0 um, that is the one that I'm shooting on any of those smaller diameter arrows. It's an awesome little shield cut vein. It's a super low profile shield cut as well, but it's a Target Max 2.0. Um, we've got 40 packs um, at the Knock On Archery store. We've got 40 packs for only 10 bucks if you like fluorescent colors. If you don't like fluorescent color, if you like black or red or blue, then you're screwed. We don't sell those. I'm into the bright stuff. I like to see arrows fly. That's why I do it that way. Back when we shot 3D and people shot really dark veins and everything to try to so you couldn't aim at their arrow. I thought I always thought that was a dick thing to do. You know, like we're I always liked having something to aim at, otherwise I might just shoot my own target all day long. Um, so, yeah, that's what I use. And I'm trying to think if there's any that I forgot. Well, that's it for target. Those are really my main ones. I go. I like the Fat Boys 2315s. Um, at the shorter distances, I did like the Pro Fields. Certainly, once I go into a full field archery round or a full feed around, I'm... I still jump back on the original X10 because I know rear cuts and I really like that the original X10 and how much how much I could actually tune that arrow because of the way the you know it was it was a bold shaft so it's thicker in the middle than it is on the end so if you learn proper cutting front and rear and then you also learn manipulation of spine utilizing the different lengths um, of points so in other words with an x10 you can either use a stainless steel point or you can use a tungsten point the tungsten point is shorter than the other ones because it's shorter it will actually it'll make your spine slightly weaker than if you put in the exact same point weight but in the steel because the steel goes in several inches compared to the tungsten where the tungsten's sitting on that uh, on the front so you can actually 
if you're kind of in between a hundred grain point or one tenth point, you could almost put in a hundred grain point of the steel, and because it goes in that shaft longer, it actually stiffens that shaft up and for a certain portion. So it'll almost be when it comes to the, how the spine is reading and how that arrow paradox is reading the bow, it'll it'll actually be right in between. So like a steel point full length versus that shorter tungsten so it's really really cool some years i shot tungstens which obviously are super expensive if if you haven't ever seen them they're I think they used to be about 200 bucks a dozen for those points um but i would show up to tournaments and all of a sudden i would have the cheaper points the steel points in and people would say oh you didn't want to spend the money on the tungstens and it's like no actually these steel ones worked better with this particular bow, but then there was other bows where I had to shoot the tungsten. So it's kind of funny how it plays out. Um, I'm going to move into the next question here. Um, well, there's some people asking, several people asking about um, how to set up that silverback release. And I talked about that on the feed. You got to watch that. You might have tuned in late or something, but. Um, I like I like people to start out at around five pounds over their holding weight and then continually work down um, because what a lot of people struggle with with the silverback release or tension activated release their struggle off the get go is how much preload and how much pull they need to have onto that back wall before they let off the safety. Some people will let off the safety and the release is firing right away and then their next shot it doesn't fire. Um, when they let off and that's because you have a big variation in how much you're pulling against the back wall of that bow you really have to be consistent that way when the bow breaks over and it comes to the stop you're almost wanting to ease into that stop you're not wanting to pull against that back wall so hard that it almost makes you stop and go back the other way um, you got to learn to ease into the valley and I start out around five because it helps you learn that margin a little bit better. And then the better you get at shooting it, you know, eventually I'll end up at about three and a half pounds over what my holding weight is. Is kind of where I end up and where I can shoot the release without causing too much movement off the target in the front half of my body. That's another question people asked was how do I keep from pulling the, my my front bow off the target all the time when I'm using this release. Well, you're probably one, you're probably pulling too hard on it right away. You know, I, you want to continually build pressure. You don't want to apply that pressure all at one time. The faster you apply that pressure, the more you're going to move your, the front of your, or your front bow hand or the front of your bow, the more you're going to move it off the target. So that's why with this video the one thing i said is we're going to start up close we're going to start with the target off the target butt you know just we're blank bale shooting we're shooting at a blank bale we're really focusing or what i want you to focus on is learning your stop learning your valley and learning what that back wall will allow you to do um, when it comes to how much you can pull into it still feel comfortable and let off that safety and then start your pull you're really trying to learn that a lot of people don't 
Um, but one of these questions here was um, how many pounds um, do we need to set it at? Start at five. I would say close to a year from now, you might be able to be at around three and a half. But don't rush this stuff. If you're really, truly wanting to get better, people, if you have a problem, you know you have a problem, you're wanting to get better, best thing you can do right now is just tell yourself, I'm going to take this slow. I'm going to 100% going to take it slow. I'm going to work through it on steps. Um, don't feel like you have to have that release going off super easy right out of the get-go. If you learn how much you can pull on it, I mean, you can make that release to where it goes off easier just by learning, truly learning your preload, uh, learning how much you can pull against that cam to then let off your safety and then continue your pull. Um, slow it down, but learn that preload. Learn how much you can pull against your cam to let off that safety and get it to still fire in a manageable time. Um, then... Let's see. Uh, next question here was from Pat Murray. Um, Pat was asking how to prevent leaking pressure, meaning how to how to prevent yourself from creeping forward when you're trying to pull against the wall of that cam to activate this release. How do you prevent from creeping forward? Again, this is one of the most important topics that I covered in the live feed. I talked about collapsing. I talked about proper uh, posture and how your posture immediately affects how easy or difficult it is to pull against that release and get it to fire. Um, I did an exercise where I had my boy pull back to full draw and I had him just hold it for a long time. And as he was doing that, you could see the body start to change. You could see... the body start to compensate and leverage itself in order to keep your bow back. And that's kind of what happens once you start to get tired. The evolution release, the silverback release, they start to point out your flaws and where you're weak and where your your posture and your structure starts to break down. So you have to really focus on the best way to prevent it is to focus on knowing what it is maintaining that posture shoulder front and down standing tall standing proud shooting proud i talked about that um, in the live feed Um, all that stuff is going to help you prevent from creeping and the other thing too is just really being conscious of the fact that you want to know that you're pulling against the wall of your cam You don't want to just feel like you're at full draw and you may be actually in the valley of your cam. You're not pulled hard against the wall. A lot of the bows now have a really solid wall so you know where you're at. But again, these are all that preventing creeping. Um, The ease of that release going off, pulling yourself off the target because you're pulling too hard, all those things there are relative to learning preload and learning your back wall and learning your valley of your cam this is a big reason why repetition is important not so much from the strength aspect or aspect but more so from 
the more repetitive you are with shooting, it's very finite muscles, and you're you start to learn with your mind and muscle connection how much you can manipulate that release or how you can pull against those cams to get the shot that you want and the more practice you have it's not necessarily making you stronger or making you aim better what it's doing is it's letting you be way more systematic um, and much much more um, consistent in how your shots work from one to the next. Like I said, when I'm really shooting and just going through the motions and just start to get into a zone of shooting where I'm on, you know, I'm on, it's almost like a clock. It's just tick tock, tick tock. And every 12 to 14 seconds, my shots activating from where I start it uh, works really good. The other thing you can do too, if you're new to the podcast, um, I've talked about this in the past, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna look it up here quick. But I did a video last year of me shooting an indoor round. I didn't do it. Um, let's see, it's just John Dudley Archer 300 round. Um, I didn't do it to show people I can shoot a 300. The reason I did it is because I wanted people to just look at timing and rhythm. If I'm in my practice mode and I'm not like at a tournament where I'm actually waiting for one end to to come up where I can shoot my three arrows and I gotta sit down and wait for the next people to shoot their three arrows and then you got the, everyone goes and pulls and then you come back, I mean it's like, this is more I want to just get into a zone. I almost want to get lost in this this world of shooting. So I just really start to focus on my timing and it's almost like a cadence where you're you're just like counting this stuff out in your head and you're trying to learn to raise the bow, draw back, anchor, come into your peep, get the pin right in the center of the target you feel comfortable there and all of a sudden you just start to that motion of pulling through the release and you're almost you know for me i'm counting in my head you know as soon as i look down at my feet it's from there it's just one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen four barrel and there it goes and a lot of times between that 12 and 14 it's happening so the point of that video was just to give you something to look at um, from a timing aspect and rhythm, learning that back wall, learning preload. I really like to use that term. Um, it's no different than when you preload and you're, the, you pull, your bow stops. Then when that bow stops, if you want, you can pull against it harder. And when you do that, it, it almost, when, when it's at a dead stop and you try to start your pull from a dead stop already, then you really start to feel what muscles you're using to pull that bow back. Whereas when you're already going through the whole motion of drawing a bow back and it stops, you don't really know where that muscle is. But when you pull back and it stops, and then you pull just a little bit more, you can really focus on where that contraction is happening on your pull. And that's when you really want to 
key in on that one little muscle group that I showed with my boy, the rhomboids. Um, you know, you can notice with Harry when he pulls, the bow stops and he brings his elbow up. And as I have him bringing that elbow up, he's preloading that muscle. And that way, when he lets off that release and starts his pull, you can see it's happening very easily. Um, he's pulling to make it happen, but he's not pulling himself apart to make it happen. He has that preload, and that's a big part. Someone someone asks a question here in this feed um, about where the rear elbow should be, that position. Some people, it's higher than others. The main thing is you don't want the rear, rear elbow coming below parallel because then you're pulling with your lower back versus pulling through with your your scapular muscles so with harry his elbow naturally is slightly higher than mine um, mine's rev relatively my rear my rear arm is actually parallel with my front arm um, harry's is a little higher um, in the past year, like there's been shooters like, for example, Michelle Ragsdale had an extremely high rear elbow. Um, if it's higher, I'm not necessarily concerned about that as opposed to it being lower. I definitely don't like it being below parallel to the ground. Um, and for some people, the higher they get it, the more they can feel where their preload is. So it's really going to be up to you. Um, but that's a really, really good place to start. Um, let's see here. Tanner Morrison is asking um, to name out my steps for my shot routine. So my, my steps, my personal steps, are checking my stance, my grip, raising the bow arm to the target, drawing back, mentally checking front shoulder position. So I, it's stance, grip, shoulder, then the next one would be my anchor, then my peep. Um, that's really my five key positions for getting you in the proper positioning. Um, so hopefully that helps you out, man. Appreciate it, Tanner. Um, let's see. I'm looking through looking through here okay well what's the price for the silverback the silverback was 200 bucks um they're out now there's none left and knock to it's are actually in production right now so when those knocks to it's are done we're gonna work on silverbacks again i may have a little small batch that comes in but i'm sure they're gonna be gone really quick if you want if you want to know when these are going to be back in, people, you have to go to the Knock on Archery store. You have to find the release, and right underneath the release, there's a box that says Notify Me or something, and you have to click that box, and you just put your email in there. And as soon as we load the releases on the website, you're going to get notified that they're there and you'll be one of the first to know as long as you have your notifications turned on, like as long as your email is being pushed through to your phone. Um, let's see. 
Someone, well, James Hankins just says Hoyt Defiant Modules, question mark. I don't know what that means, man. Um, let's see here. Looking through it. Okay, so the next question I found here was from Randy Smith, and he's saying, why a pull three release rather than a hinge? And um, there's, there's a few comments in there. Um, my buddy Ryan chimed in and pretty much said pull th with the pull through release there's no manipulation of the hand um, it's all pull and you can you can control how easy or how difficult a tension release is to go off according to your hand position certain hand positions make it more difficult you know a lot of people that try to shoot a tension release by rotating the release around like what you would with the, uh, like you would with a hinge release, they just don't have any success. They end up struggling that way, and it feels really inconsistent. And it's because you're one person's used to hand manipulation, which is really what you do with a hinge. With the hinge release, it does give you a surprise release, and it is a big part of how I fix my target panic, but. I just think that there would I think that I did it during a time where there wasn't a better way of understanding what I was looking for. I think now at least every time I've put a tension activated release in someone's hands and I can work with them and I can do my best to teach them what a surprise shot at with a trigger. Even if I say, okay, now that's what a perfect surprise shot is with the trigger. And, and even if I have them sit there and make a few shots like that, I can still take a silverback, put it in their hands or an evolution, and teach them to hold a safety down, draw back, let off the safety, and then continually pull in the motion that I teach them to until that release fires and Every time I've done that with someone, they just look at you like, oh, okay, yeah, that's a surprise shot. Okay, now I get it. Um, so that's really what you're striving for. You really want that feeling. And with the hinge, you can get, you can get that surprise feeling, but you're also going to have to, I think you're going to have to figure out what manipulation method works best for you because with with a hinge release some people just pull back and pull hard on it and they rotate the hand some people squeeze the pinky some people relax the index finger some people do a lot of motion with their back but i still think that they have to manipulate the hand as they're working their back as well so that's really the difference um either one can get you to the to the promised land but i've just found with my experience some are better than others um let's see uh looking through here yeah ryan ryan was actually watching as i was coaching talked about uh he noticed harry was preloading the back really good um, let's see. Next question was from Ken Robolowski, I think. 
I don't know, Ken, I might have hacked your name, buddy, sorry. Um, he asked, what's the advantage? What advantage would the knock to it have over the silverback? And then would I ever hunt with the silverback? So, yeah, I've answered this a million times. Uh, Harry and Sharon always hunt with them. I shot my elk this year with it. You can hunt with it for sure, and it can give you a surprise shot, no doubt. Um, Christian Berg, the editor of Peterson's Bow Hunter, shoot, shoots his all the time. Same thing. So the main advantage of a knock to it for me is that I can actually clip it on a string and it's always on there. Um, and I can still get the same exact shot and same feel with a knock to it as I can with a silverback. So I just bounce around back and forth. I do like having a thumb trigger and I really like having the ability to clip it on my string and leave it on there. Now the silverback, unfortunately you can't fully close the jaw shut. Otherwise you would, if you put it on there and you didn't want your release on the string, you'd have to dang near quarter draw your bow in order to get it to fire to open up. So that's kind of the, the pain to it of not being able to um not be able to just like click a button and have the release or the jaw open up so they're really a horse apiece i shoot both i really like both and i made it that way um and the other thing too i saw a couple different questions people saying about the silverback um, hitting slightly different than their knock to it. So certainly if you're shooting a silverback release, depending on how you pull through your bow, like this, it can teach you a lot. Like people that feel like the knock to it hits high. Um, I think those people are going to find out that they're probably not pulling as hard on the wall with their knock to it as when they're shooting with their evolution with their evolution they're forced to pull against that wall and pull deep into the wall to force it to fire then if you're a shooter that just is waiting and aiming with your thumb release like you're sitting there you don't want to punch it you got your thumb on the trigger and you're just waiting and aiming a lot of times shooters that shoot that way versus pulling through they will shoot slightly higher because you're almost depending on your cam position or your cam synchronization, you're almost like shooting in a creep position if you're not super hard on the wall. You know, a lot of, you might have heard the term creep tuning, and that's where pros would actually take their bow, they'd pull it hard against the wall, then they would let it creep forward just a little bit and shoot it. And a lot of times, if you haven't done what's called creep tuning with your bow, you'll find that you shoot high when you're weak on the back wall. That's very common. You can tune that out of your system or help improve it by changing the positioning of your top cam. Like some, A lot of people find that if you're going to creep tune, you want your top cam to touch your cable before the bottom cam touches. Um, you know, you put that top cam ahead of the bottom and it, a lot of times it'll help you when you're at full draw for a while and then you start to creep forward. Um, normally what happens was that top cam would always come off 
before the bottom one would. Um, so people set them up with what's called a creep tune. So I think having a tension release, you really learn that back wall. You learn preload, you learn valley. I mean, you learn a whole new set of things. When you're shooting a trigger release and you get into the mode of aiming, you just, you're kind of in this little abyss, like this little black hole that's within the last half inch of your bow's draw cycle that can take you a lot of different directions if you're not really understanding it and focusing on how it on how it works um let's see here some people asking how to set releases up and yeah you can go to um go to the youtube channel knock on archer youtube i have um a video there specific about the releases um let's see i'm just gonna look up the name of it quick so um it would be you could look up knock on release setup by john dudley um, that one would help you and geez there was another one um knock to it and silverback release setup first look that can also help you as well either one of those will be important for you to check out let's see next question here is um, uh, looking through sorry a lot of people just making comments and chiming in with one another I appreciate all of you who were watching the live feeds it's almost like it's really cool to see it like a community now even um, Sharon and Little Dud talked about that the fact that as we're live live streaming, it's hard to keep up with your questions when everyone's chiming in, but it is nice that there's like a friendly, it's almost like there's a friendship there. People are remembering one another and, and saying, hey, what's up? Glad you came back or whatever. So I appreciate that. I like keeping it positive. Um, so the next question here was from Sam. Um Lovelace the third um, is asking what is happening if you're getting pulled off the target during the pulling process so like I said earlier if you're pulling yourself off it can be a few things and you notice it more with with some really you know especially when you're pulling through the shot if your stance is off it can really start to help you identify when you're twisting yourself off the target some people where their stance is too open, meaning your torso or your belly button, you're pointing it more towards the target. What happens is when people's stance are pointing that way and they draw their bow back, they're actually having to twist their tor- their upper part of their torso so that they're they're not facing the same way as their feet. And then what happens is the harder you continue to pull, the more you start to pull yourself you know, one, you're pulling yourself off the target, but in all reality, you're actually just, your upper body is starting to turn so that it's back to center with where your hips are facing. So you got to really focus on that. It's no different than taking something that's made of rubber, um, you know, standing it up 
holding the bottom in one position and then turning the top you know turning the top so you can do it what happens is you let go of the top it just springs back to where the bottom is facing and that's really what's happening with your stance if you start to open your stance too far you know you're you're literally opening it up to where if your shoulders are facing in the same direction as your stance you'll notice that your left shoulder is pointing to the left of the target that you're aiming at and with that said that's naturally where it's going to want to go the the harder you pull um, the other thing too is some people have gotten the habit over the years of almost pushing like and extending through with the left arm too much so that also will have you pull left of the target so make sure you look down at your your feet a cool exercise to do to check your stance is make the stance that you think that you you normally are going to shoot in or that you what you think is best for you and draw your bow back go anchor properly look through your peep put your pin right in the center of the target and hold your pin in the center of the target and then while you're holding there Go ahead and close your eyes and just do your best to try to hold your pin where you think it's in the same spot and close your eyes for about five seconds and then open them. If you notice that when you open your eyes back up, you're way left of the target, that's normally an indicator that your stance is too open. Likewise, if you open your eyes and, you're, and you're, you find yourself way to the right of the target, that'll that's a um, kind of a factor that shows up if you're shooting too closed of a stance meaning your front foot is further forward than the rear foot so you're almost turning your torso behind the shooting line instead of towards it so you, know, you really want to shoot with a neutral stance is what i call it and that's where the toe of your front foot is in line with the ball of your rear foot you don't want to open your torso too much um, you know your your feet should almost be for sure pointing parallel with the shooting line um, but if anything the front foot can be barely one or two inches behind the back foot but that's really about as far as you want to go those that right there can help you tr tremendously when it comes to like where you're holding on a target and fighting your bow if it keeps wanting to pull to the left all the time other thing is draw length draw length can definitely be a factor there as well um let's see yep and then i saw that question there from from kim um was saying i bought both releases and let's see for you you say oh you say both releases and you seem to be hitting low and left with the knock to it um which is you know it's funny one of you says you hit low left the other one says he was hitting high right so again definitely determining factors on how you pull and how you actually manipulate your form with one release versus the next i can tell you that my silverback for me at a really long distance you know 80 yards or so it definitely hits just a fuzz right for me if i'm keeping the release fairly flat 
at, you know, when I'm at full draw, if the release is fairly flat, it will go out to the right, probably because of how it's coming off the hook as you're pulling. But if I turn my release hand a little bit more vertical with the silverback versus what I do with the knock to it, um, then it they they just go right in there. Works awesome. Um, let's see here. Okay, Ryan was asking, um, does the fist of the release hand have to come straight over the shoulder or it can, can it be outside a bit? And he's talking about this in relation to when you shoot and your release goes off and your rear hand starts to move away from that bow and the bow is going forward, the release hand's coming back. You know, I always talk about pulling your release hand over the top of the shoulder and contracting that bicep so that you come around. Now, depending on how much mass you have in your bicep and your forearm area, that might not come back and around near as far, or especially depending on your range of motion in your shoulders, it might not come back near as far as someone that's leaner, more flexible. Um, so the main thing is you don't want to get in the habit of coming back straight back as best you can one time, but then coming out away from your face the next. You know, a lot of a lot of times those low or left arrows, they they're left more because your release hand is coming out and away from your face as you fired versus the fact that your left arm is actually being pulled left to the target. You know, some people that say, I'm really struggling, my pin keeps wanting to go left, and then they're shooting, they're going left. Some of the arrows are going left because I'm watching their release hand as, they, as they're, you know, pulling. They're actually pulling the string away from their face, and when that shot breaks, that's, that's the direction it goes, and they definitely see that result down on the paper. So be mindful of that as well. Um, let's see. Looking through here. Um, Pat Fields was asking, how do you know when the front shoulder is packed into the joint? Um, if you watch that video, I talk about it very specifically. You really need to look at where that shoulder is sitting on Harry. It's down and forward. That scapula is down and forward. The other thing, too, is your elbow position really changes how your shoulder can hold weight when it's being um you know, when it's being pressed against, like in that full draw position, you know, the more, the more you turn your elbow down, that socket, the way it rotates there, it's more likely to come up and it's more likely to creep the further down your elbows pointing. Like if you're, if you stick your thumb out there, if your thumb's in a vertical position, you've kind of had to rotate that arm bone into that scapula socket and it doesn't hold there near as good as when your elbow is pointing out to about eight o'clock or your thumb is sitting at a 45 degree angle if you're in that position that front shoulder is really in a great spot to where one you're utilizing your skeletal structure it's able to put in be in there the right way but you're also not using other muscles that are not holding in that pattern 
you know, when they're naturally relaxed. Like in other words, if you if you do turn your thumb to where it's pointing up, which people that get deep into their bow grip, that is what they do. When I do that, I actually feel like I'm having to use muscles to move it to that position. Whereas when I raise my arm and my thumbs at a 45, that is a very natural position. I feel like there's a lot of muscles in that whole front arm there that are relaxed in that position. But when I start to turn my thumb too much up or when I start to turn my thumb down, I feel like I'm actually utilizing rotator muscles in that socket to manipulate it that way. And that's that's not what you want. Any type of muscle that you're relying on for shooting is probably going to be inconsistent at some point. Muscle fatigues. So anything that fatigues is going to change. It's going to vary, and that's what ends up happening. Um, let's see. Um, Zachary Pearson was asking, will it be more difficult to use this release with improper draw length? And I think I answered you on the show. It definitely will. Um, anytime you're trying to utilize back tension, if you're overextended, it just feels like you've run out of actual movement to be able to get that release to fire. You're more likely to be able to shoot it if your draw length is shorter versus being longer. However, when you're shorter, you end up having to manipulate the front shoulder or the front elbow in order to make that bow fit properly. And you can certainly still get a surprise shot if you're shooting too short um, but you will develop neck pains shoulder pains um, sometimes it'll become chronic people that shoot a front compressed shoulder really start to develop neck pains and shoulder binds um, different types of impingements all that stuff comes from people that are trying to just aim. Um, I remember back in the day, um, went to a to a little shooting class with with a buddy of mine. He went to see um, Bernie Bernie P. I'll just leave it at that. And um, he was talking about the fact that he had quite a bit of movement. So Bernie just put a laser on his bow and said, okay, pull back and then showed him his movement. And then he took his bow and he shortened it up two inches and then said, and then said, okay, now see how, how solid you hold. And he's like, this is what your drawing should be. And he, he drew back and he held twice as steady. The thing is though, it wasn't really the draw length they needed. What it was, it was a way for him to compact all of his body to the point where he was more solid. However, as soon as you do that, you lose your ability to be dynamic. I could aim better than I aim right now if I shorten my draw length two inches. I can guarantee you that. Like, for example... Um, I was working on my buddy's bow this weekend and his draw length is significantly shorter than mine. And when I shoot it, it actually doesn't feel bad. It's three inches short for me. But if I really have to 
focus on what I'm doing to pull through the shot properly. When it comes to how the boat aims and how the boat sits, I mean, it feels like I'm in a vice. But my posture is super poor, and although I can hold steadier, I'm not near as accurate. This is an important thing for people to get over in their mind um, because you know I'm pretty sure this coach is still out there teaching people this. And how steady you can hold the laser means nothing if in the end you're not going to be getting proper shot execution pulling through properly and with this with this release if your front shoulder position varies from one shot to the next it will point it out Um, i think for some people it can be frustrating because they feel like the release is inconsistent but i really like to encourage people that that's an important step is for them to learn that and just like with anything there's often a regression at the initial start of something new um, and then once you really learn it you start to go the other way Um, let's see here well Todd was actually Dayton Todd Halloway was asking um about showing my thumb position on the silverback as I pull it back. Thumb position is just fully pressing down. I'm just pushing down on that trigger, making sure I've got that trigger. It sits right in the first bend of my finger. I kind of have it sitting right in there, and I have it depressed. Um, Then once I get to full draw and I've got my pin on the target, I'll let my thumb off that safety and bring it around until it touches the fingernail on my index finger. And that's what I really kind of key in on when I'm pulling through. Um, let's see. Jason Brent Haller saying, please discuss specific, specific effective form on the release brake um, tension or leverage affecting the braking weight and timing. I guess I don't really know what you mean by that. Um, Again, I talked earlier already about as I'm pulling through and that shot breaks, the contraction of the bicep really focusing on pulling the release hand over the top of the rear shoulder as best you can. Some people can do it better than others, depending on your flexibility and muscle mass. Um, but the other thing is really, you know, you mentioned here leverage affecting the braking weight and a lot of this leverage that you're talking about it's what i discussed earlier it's really understanding preload people have to learn their preload they have to pull back when the bow comes to a stop kind of pull on it just a little bit more and maybe you don't pull on it more and stay at that weight maybe just pull on a little bit more to know where you're at and then you almost go back to where you started learning that that valley learning that preload that's so valuable the better you the longer you shoot the better you get at that um my one buddy that i've been shooting with some here over this last year he takes an incredible amount of time to warm up to where he really gets in a rhythm and it's interesting because he you know he doesn't compete at all so he doesn't really feel like the need of getting 
on center quicker. It's almost like he's he's used to these to like warm ups in different sports and stuff that he does. So he's almost used to that. Doesn't seem to does he doesn't mind it. But the longer he shoots, the better and better and better and better he gets to where it's almost like he gets in the like you know gets in his zone at the end of an incredible amount of time. Whereas for me, I'm almost feel like I've had a good practice session. I'm ready to like start shutting down about the time he's just then getting into it. So, you know, it's, there's a fine line there. You know, you have to, you have to learn it, but you also don't want to take an incredible amount of time to get there either way, you know, as well. Um, let's see. Um, James, Hankins was saying he doesn't have a scale, but as soon as he lets off the safety on the silverback, it goes off. So your tension is not enough. Um, when I did that video and I talked about where I, where it could possibly be a good starting point, and what I did was I took a release, I backed it all the way out, and then I counted for you how many turns I turned it in. That was really just a starting point. Um you really want to be able to let off that safety, not worrying about it firing, um, and then have it fire once you're, again, you're about four to five pounds over the holding weight. If you don't have a scale, the main thing is you have to be able to let off. And I want you to feel like you're, I want you to feel like you're almost pulling one inch of extra length out of that bow before it'll fire that's kind of what i want you to feel like i know if you have a stop on your cam you're probably not going to get that feeling but that's what i want you to if you could imagine it that's what i would like see if you can feel like you're pulling about one inch of extra draw out of the bow before it fires if for some reason james you are it's firing no matter what you do when you let off the safety um then you could always call Forrest at Carter. Um, Carter releases, you can call Forrest, and he'll either help you, or if you think that there's something wrong with the release, then certainly we'll always fix it. So you can send it back in, and that thing will get taken care of, no question. Um, let's see. Charlie Kester is saying, should you feel the bicep? of the release arm flex as you pull not really you want to pull more with your back and more with your shoulder you want to utilize your back strength and your shoulder strength to pull through there's going to be a part where you get about three quarters of draw where at that point and your bow is like coming into that stop where you might feel some of that bicep but if you're feeling too much, it's because you're either drawing your bow too low. Like if you start to draw your bow under your chest, you'll get a lot of bicep into it because then you're almost doing a row motion versus a pulling motion. The higher your release hand is above, especially above your chest, the less likely you are to, to pull just with the bicep. Um, let's see. Uh looking through here uh, okay so Nate was saying why would my anchor seem to change between the silverback and the knock to it um, 
feel like I really need to really lean into the string and peep with the silver back, but I feel perfect with the knock to it. The length of those two are the same. The difference is, and probably what you're doing, Nate, is because you feel like you have to hold that safety down and you might be that you might be worried about whether or not that silverback is going to go off as you're drawing it back. If you're making a big old fist around that release, then you're going to have a completely different feel at full draw. You need to have the same exact hand position with the silverback as you do the knock to it. So that's why I teach keeping your hand flat and having that release in the first row of the knuckles. Extend your thumb and hold that safety down. Don't get tight on that release and make a big fist around that release so that you can hold that safety down because one when you make a fist your main knuckles brings your release hand off your face and that's going to feel different and two you really start to shorten your overall length because of that um let's see here kevin green was asking um the difference of shooting a pin versus shooting um a scope so he's meaning like a just a regular up pin with no magnification uh versus a scope and you know i guess really the difference is just going to be sight picture you know some people that are starting to struggle some with their eyesight um they they then start to struggle when they're trying to shoot a scope of either being able to see the scope or being able to see the pin and for those people, a lot of times, they might just be better off not having the magnification anymore. I've had a lot of tournaments that I've shot with no magnification at all. Some of the best 3D scores I ever shot was with no magnification and just a 29,000 uh, fiber. Whereas there's been other years where the where the best rounds I've shot is just with a scope and a black, you know, black or white dot in the center of it. Um, it really depends on the type of picture you're trying to look at. You know, if you're shooting some 3D and you're in darker situations, um, having a, a dot on your scope lens can be really tough to see versus just having that fiber. But when I'm in indoor shooting, or I'm, especially for me with like the yellow targets, the yellow, you know, red, yellow, blue, the Vegas face, Fiber pins start to really wash out. They start to get a lot of like a starburst for me when I'm aiming at yellow. I don't know why, but yellow for me is the hardest to put any type of fiber pin on. So if I'm having to aim at yellow, I tend to want a scope just so I can put a black dot on there. Um, obviously, the more power lens or power scope you have, the more magnification you're going to see, which magnification equals movement you're going to see more of your movement so if you tend to feel anxiety when you're moving on a target or when you're you know bouncing around then obviously let lower power or no power is going to help you eliminate that feeling um i shoot both of them i you know there's times last night the bow i had i did not have any magnification um the target bow I'm shooting, let's see, my indoor bow, I think I'm shooting equivalent to a six power lens. Um, 
it's a 0.7 diopter, but it's a, equal to a six power at my draw length. Um, for outdoor last year when I shot 3D, I went to one tournament in Canada and I had a lens. Then I went to another tournament um, a week later and I did not have a lens. So it does vary. You just got to go with, with what you're comfy with. Um, let's see. Whitetail Archer is asking a question. I did it during the video. Um, let's see. James Hankins was saying that he's going to be ordering a Hoyt Defiant, but doesn't know which mo which um, mod to order. Like, um, said he's a 28-inch draw, so he might be referring to cam size. Um, you're going to want to be in like a number two cam and have it in a longer position versus being in a number three cam and having it in a shorter position. That I can tell you. I'm not really familiar at what positions they're going to be at, but anytime you can have a cam in the longer positions, the C, D, E positions are going to be better than having them in the A or B position. Let's see. Um, my elbow is broken. This is coming from Lyndon Mason. My elbow is broken in my teens, and I now can't straighten my front arm. Feels like it puts heaps of pressure on my tri and top shoulder. Very possible. Um, I showed that to you with Harry when his arm started to become too bent, um, which Harry, Harry's been growing so much that he's actually, I need to get new cams for his bow, um, which is kind of why I've put off doing it. But he is at the point where you can start to see a lot of pressure on his triceps just because that elbow slightly bent that's the same thing that's happening with what you're describing Lyndon. so that really sucks dude if you can't straighten it out um main thing is just really try your best to keep that front arm relaxed focus on that um if it was broken without being able to see it I'm, it's hard for me to know how bad it is or what it looks like but um you you could you could definitely deal with some um, some issues there. <coughs> uh, Tim uh, Malakoti is saying that he shoots a wrist strap release. Um, will I have to adjust my draw length or D loop to shoot a silverback or the knock to it? It's possible. I you know a lot of people shoot wrist strap releases in different positions. I've pretty much learned to shoot where I have the release always strapped around a certain part of my wrist. Like I don't leave the wrist strap loose to where it can move in different positions. I also am pretty particular about having the trigger shorter on the strap so that when I curl my index finger around it, it's sitting right in the perfect spot. Um, for me there's not much difference even in peep height i can make both work now i prefer <clears throat> a little bit shorter loop with an index release because the way they clamp around them you can get away with that versus on a handheld release which you turn like you know as you draw back it's it's flat it's parallel to the ground 
And as you draw back, then you turn your pinky upwards. So you actually start to increase the amount of torque you put back there on that D loop. So I don't want it too short with a wrist strap release or with a, a handheld release anyway, because I don't want to be twisting my string. I want the loop to twist, not the string. So I think you'll probably be able to get it. In most cases, unless you're shooting a super short wrist strap release, you'll be able to lengthen your loop and make it work, but it should be real minimal, the uh, the adjustment that you need to do to your peep sight. Um, let's see here. Uh, looking through here. Let's see. Anthony Null was asking, could you talk about where the release elbow is supposed to be? I did talk about that. Um, talked about that earlier in this podcast. And let's see. I think we're getting through. I don't know. We did sell a few uh, knock to it releases. We put them on the website last night. Um, they had a logo. The logo was lasered on them about, I forget, it was barely off-center, but it was slightly off-center, so I'm like, well, we ended up telling everybody about it and put them on there. Um, Well, I think they're sold out. Yep, they're gone. No point in talking about it. Yeah, we had... um, I know we had like 120 to start, but Sharon offered them some to some different people that emailed her. And then last night we had 30 more, and we put them on during the live feed, but they're gone. So sorry, no point in even talking about them now. Um, let's see. That's probably it. Lindsey Griffin had said that her husband Kyle on a silverback it sticks in the open position so you do need to know when that release fires it's not cocked shut you have to flip it shut click it shut now if it flips open and it's like locked in like a fully like you know when it opens up it goes about i don't know 150 degrees until it kind of hits the casing if it's fully locking in that uh casing and you're like having to pry it back for some reason that just doesn't sound right again uh, if there's ever an issue carter will definitely fix it i don't make them here Um, they just make my design and unfortunately with anything if you got high numbers of stuff sometimes you have something that isn't put together the right way or springs crooked or whatever um, if that's the case, then they'll fix it. No different than if you bought it in any store as well. Um, let's see. Going through. Um, someone asked if we send items to Canada. We do. You just have to email Sharon, info at knockonarchery.com. Um, let's see. Oh, Lyndon was also, this is a cool comment. Um, I could never sit my pin on the X when I had my finger on the trigger without wanting to touch it off. Shot the silverback for a day, and now I can sit that sucker on the X with little movement and just pull back for a surprise release. Truly amazing. It's a 
cool story, man. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, several questions about. Okay, there's one question here that's good. Rob Moren is asking, um, does it make a difference if you use a limb stop as opposed to cable stops? So the bows that have a limb stop, they're going to be super solid. I mean, it's, you know, when you pull back and your your cam hits, if you have a post on your cam where it hits that limb, it's literally like hitting a brick wall. Whereas if you only have cable stops, if you're able to bend those cables, then you have movement, obviously. So there can be a slight difference. Um, some people learn preload better with a softer wall. Some people learn pre uh, preloading better with a harder wall. The cool thing is, like especially on the new bows, on the new Hoyt bows, um, you have the option to either use a cable stop or limb stop, either one. Some of the bows out there, you can, you know, you can do different things to make that stop feel more solid. But I think for the most part, almost all bow companies are getting a decent feeling on the back wall. Um, and they're actually making them solid right now. Um, let's see, one more question here. Brendan Murray is asking, said his draw length is 30.4 inches um he says should i shoot a 30 inch bow or 30 and a half well i i mean if your draw length is exactly 30.4 then i would say shoot a 30 inch bow and put a 0.4 inch loop on there or take a 30 and a half and put about three twists in your string till it's a 30.4 and you're going to be exactly on your dot so to speak um, let's see. Well, I think that's it. I just went through them, 180, and that's it. So, thanks everybody. Appreciate you tuning in. Just looked here, hour and 45 minute podcast. Um, you guys definitely sucked some podcast juice out of me. Um, look forward to it. I might have some cool guests on. Later this week on the podcast, um, I've got a few um, really important um, meetings and committees that I've got to uh, do some things on this next week in for the purpose of conservation and bettering our future as outdoorsmen and women. So uh, it's going to be a busy week for me. I might be able to squeeze another live feed out, not for sure, but working towards that. And also, last thing... Uh, before I go, um, if you, I'm going to be posting a survey and I'm going to, I'll post it to the knock on TV, Facebook page, and I might post it today or it could be tomorrow. I'm going to post a survey. We're in the process of, um, still rearranging all of my new media channels. This new website is going to be freaking awesome. Um, it's going to really allow me to put my information out there in a way that I've never been able to in the past. But um, the web developers have some questions that they want to ask all of you to help me in making this better for all of you freaks out there. So I may post that. Please take part in it. Um, I might give something away to whoever does a survey, like a random, not all of you, 
you'll I'll be broke. I'll be broke if I do that. But definitely I'll probably do like a random draw for the people that do. Um, so thanks everybody. Appreciate everything and knock on. Get out and shoot your bow. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com. <laughs>